How many of you guys like traveling? Who likes to fly on airplanes? A few? Okay, a few folks. Um, I don't love it. I'm not wild about it. Um, but every airline is, is pretty much the same. You get your assigned seat and you march on in. You kind of feel like cattle. But there's one that's a little bit different. Uh, Southwest is a little bit different because it's more like this Hunger Games experience where you line up and they give you a letter and then you try to fight off these other people and all goodwill goes out the window and you just don't want to get stuck in the middle, like a horrible game of hot potato somewhat or, or musical chairs, one of those, or maybe both a little bit. Either way, uh, what inevitably happens when you fly is, um, I'm sure you guys get this too, two questions always arise and that's if the person maybe doesn't do the whole earbud thing or they put the ear... Uh, the headphones on even before you can sit down. I don't know. I'm sure a lot of us are those folks. We just want to put our earphones on. Our whole strategy is to not make any eye contact. But if you do happen, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's retro or vintage of you. You decide to talk to the person next to you. Maybe two questions always seem to result. Where are you heading? Where are you going? Is it, is it work? Is it pleasure? Is it vacation? Where are you going? And then the second one, and the second one is where I, I just want to be really honest with you guys. This is a hard one for me. This is a hard one in life for me often. The second one is, what do you do? For me, I face this incredible fork at the road, this moment where often I, I kind of want to lie at times, if I'm just being completely honest. I don't know if I necessarily want to get into it. And sometimes I maybe tell a half-truth. Maybe I'll just say, I'm a teacher. Um, until they then say, well, well, what age? And I go, all ages, all sorts of ages, you know, like all, all the grades, all of them at once. Um, and the reason why, the reason why is, is maybe being a pastor, maybe being a uh, a preacher is not as esteemed as it used to be. It doesn't carry the same maybe esteem and renown and even respect that it did even a generation ago. And so there's this propensity, there's this thing within me that wants to be liked, that wants to be respected, that wants to be accepted, that wants to be affirmed. I don't like being judged right away based on what I do or what I believe. I don't like maybe being put into a box before I even have a chance to be known. I'm sure a lot of you guys have those exact same experiences. Maybe when you start a new job or sitting inside a classroom and the subject of God or faith or Christianity begins to come up to the surface. Or maybe if you've ever thought about reading the Bible in your break room or maybe having a conversation with someone on the bus as they see you reading your Bible. Maybe there is. Maybe there's just that, that tinge of, I want to be liked. And if I'm honest, if I'm really honest, as I come to our passage today, as I even have studied with it, this week and been convicted by it, there's been this sense of there's a hard truth in here. Jesus says some profoundly difficult things that are hard for us to really accept. Because really, if you're not going to sanitize it or rub off the rough edges, there's some things in it that make it so you won't always be liked. So you might not always be accepted. And Jesus, in some ways, prophesies that. He gives us a heads up of that being the truth. Preaching this passage even is, is somewhat hard to, to do and even hard to hear because even as I do, I want to be liked. But more than being liked, I want to speak clearly and I want to speak honestly about what Jesus says and why he says it. So let me get the hard thing right out of the gate. Let me say the hard thing that's just right in this passage, right up front, and then we'll dive into it more. But as you abide, and that's what we've been looking at the last three weeks as we've been going through John 15, we've been looking at the Christian life isn't really just mentally assenting to a certain belief system or even theological doctrines, but rather it's this experiential communion and union with the creator of the universe. As God is in the business of putting things back together again, as he looks at the fall and the contamination of the world from Genesis 3, and he looks and says his creation has been altered and destroyed and brought into chaos, he seeks to redeem it and to put it back the way it is, the way it was meant to be. Kind of like a, a Humpty Dumpty-like story. And as he, as he does that, he invites you and I into relationship with him. And what has he even said? Remember John 14, where the Holy Spirit says, He's going to come make his home inside of you. He's going to come dwell in you. And remember how radical this is for the Jewish audience. The only place you would ever go to meet God is the temple. And no one would dare to go into the Holy of Holies, the very presence, the very place of God, except one priest one time a year for one sacrifice. But never in a way, as Jesus told us last week, in which the whole entire paradigm of God's relationship with his people is altogether altered by you now becoming his friend. Remember that? Jesus says, you're no longer just my servants, but you're my friends, and I'm bringing you into communion. I'm bringing you into relationship. That's why I think for many of us, 
we're missing, we sometimes forget, we sometimes deny or functionally neglect the reality that God wants more than just our mental ascent, but he wants our entire beings. He wants all of us. And as that happens, as that becomes your reality, as you become transformed, as you become more like Jesus because you're abiding in him and you're following him, you'll find yourself at odds with the world. Let's look at the first section of our passage again. It'll be up here on the screen. You can also follow along in your Bibles. There's also one in the pew in front of you. But here's what it says. Jesus, as he's continuing to tell his disciples, look, I've got hours left. We're coming down the home stretch. Things are about to get really, really difficult. And here's what you need to know. I'm preparing you. I'm bracing you for what is on the very horizon. This is what he says in verse 18 again. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Incredible. Jesus goes straight for the marrow here. He gets right down to brass tacks. Now, if we're going to understand this passage rightly, there's a few words that repeat, that repeat themselves all throughout. They come up over and over, and we have to have a firm grasp and understanding of what's actually being said. The word hate. The word hate. Now, we have all sorts of different understandings of the word hate, like I hate you know, liver and onions, or I hate papyrus font, or whatever it might be. We have all sorts of different type of hates, but here's a good translation for hate here. It means hate. Um, it means a, a strong opposition, a, a desire to thwart or to stunt or to retard, to hold back in opposition. For those of you who are football fans, think of like the, the Heisman post, just this stiff arm, this, this firm, unrelenting opposition. What Jesus is saying is, I've come and I've spoken a different reality. I'm impinging upon the values of this world. And as I do that, they're not going to be met by this... We're so excited. Just come on in, Jesus. We're so excited to hear what you have to say. We're all going to immediately change all of our behaviors and values and governments and systems and beliefs and ideas and sexualities and everything about nature. But rather, it's going to be met with incredible opposition. Why? Because humanity finds itself in deep rebellion and hostility to the God of the universe. There's something within our hearts that doesn't often hear the good news, the claims of Jesus Christ, and immediately finds ourselves having a deep, warm embrace like a Snuggie, but rather finds ourselves looking for reasons to buck against, like a wild horse that is yet to be tamed. And so there's a strong opposition. And Jesus is teaching that obeying his teaching creates opposition. Have any of you noticed that? As you've walked with Jesus, as you've sought to follow Jesus, has there been opposition for you? At times, I'm sure even in your family, when you maybe became a Christian, if your family wasn't, I'm sure there was opposition. And in our day and age, maybe opposition manifests itself as ridicule or scorn or mockery or even just skepticism. This dismissive attitude of, really, could you believe that? Like those myths and fables and folklores and that's so ancient and antiquated and outdated. Why would you still want to embrace these, these, these old teachings? It's a form of opposition. Because as you follow Jesus, and really we've said what it means to follow Jesus, just super practical, and I want you guys to hear this. What it means to follow Jesus is you just walk where he walks. This is how Jesus called his first disciples. Remember all the way back to John chapter 1 when Jesus was calling his original disciples. He didn't even immediately tell them, hey, here's all the theology. You've got to believe it all right now. Sign on the dotted line. But rather he invited them to follow. Come along. Come and see. Check me out. Just go where I go. Do what I do. And as you do, you will be transformed. You will be conformed more into the image of Jesus because the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you and enables you to follow Jesus. 
to trust Jesus, to repent of your sin, to reconform even your appetites and desires. And so there's this opposition. As we talk about Jesus, as we model Jesus, it will create opposition. So a couple questions arise out of that. How do we handle that? What do we do with this opposition? Christians have been wrestling with these questions for thousands of years. There's a library worth of books written on how Christians press into and deal with culture and how we evangelize and how we love others well. The balance between grace and truth and speaking the truth and love has always been something that's been hard for Christians. In reality, it's not something that we'll probably ever get perfectly right, but we walk out by grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. But I do think there's some things we can see in this passage as we continue to look at it. So what Jesus is saying is you will face opposition. You will face opposition. And so for some Christians, the temptation becomes to maybe try to soften Jesus, to get rid of the rough edges. Um, Or think of it this way. Some folks have maybe thought of like a a Mary Poppins type understanding, like a spoonful of sugar helps the, the Jesus go down. Maybe we can sweeten Jesus with saying, let's just pay attention to the stuff he said that we all like. Love people, feed your neighbor, uh, you know, care for others. These are all things we can all get behind, right? So Jesus is just this great moral, philosophical teacher. He's got really good ideas, and if you follow his principles, your life will go better. Like, that seems good, right? Or maybe life coach Jesus. Like, just, just trust Jesus. If you do, things are going to tend to go better. Your kids will behave. You'll get a better seat in, on the airplane, whatever it might be. Things will go better for you if you just do what Jesus says. And so we repackage Jesus that way. Entire denominations, if you look at church history, and I just want to be honest with you guys because it's really important for us, even as a young church, it's really important we get this right and we get this clear. Entire denominations have felt the woo and the enticement of the culture around them to repackage Jesus. In fact, there's even a website called Jesus Needs New PR. Um, And there's millions of dollars spent every year by books and websites and even preachers to repackage Jesus, to reframe Jesus, to give him new PR, to give him a new approach. But yet, in order to do that, you'd have to rip out parts of the Bible like we're reading today. They would become, in some ways, scandalous. Here's the truth. As you and I follow Jesus, we're never going to be able to get around, and nor should we want to, the claims of his lordship, the reality that he comes to eventually judge the living and the dead when he returns, and the reality that he has complete power and control over all of human history. And so we can buck against that, we can rebel against that, and really we would just join the entire human experience and condition in doing so. And so Jesus is is saying this is the reality, this is how things will continue to unfold. So as we've been studying John, we've seen that time and time again, haven't we? This is why it's so good for us to just go through books of the Bible, and we love doing that here at Redemption, because we get to have this incredibly clear picture on who Jesus is. Um, we've even just called the, the broader series we've been doing as we've gone through the Gospel of John is Jesus No Filter. Because we've just wanted to have a very clear look at who Jesus really is. And as you guys remember, I mean, what's usually stirred up the most controversy when it's come to Jesus? What's usually gotten the biggest reaction? It's when he's made claims about his authority. In John, in, in John 9 and 10, these stories of Jesus coming and he heals a blind guy. A blind, who's against healing blind people? Like, no one's really against that. You're not going to find, if we were to vote on that, like, hey, here's a blind guy. Who wants him to stay blind or who wants him to see? We're all going to line up like, hey, let's give him some sight. Come on, like, do the guy solid. No one's going to line up over here. But what really outrages the religious establishment? What really causes the controversy? Is that Jesus is making a claim through the demonstration of his power about who he really is. And with that miracle, with that redemption, with that healing also comes The reality that you now must submit to who he is. That he does have authority. That he does have complete power. That he does have the ability to forgive sin. That he controls the wind and the waves. That when he stood up and he inaugurated and began his ministry, he did so in a way that wasn't just filled with clever, pithy remarks, but it was loaded with authority. That's really what what was the outrage of Jesus' teaching. Wasn't that he was saying things like, man, We just don't like your ideas. It's who he was claiming to be. Even in this passage, what did we just see in those verses he read? He's equating. He's saying over and over, if you don't like me, you don't like God. If you hate me, you hate God. He's saying there is no difference between God and me. 
God and me. We are one. There is no getting to God outside of Jesus Christ. We saw this in John 14. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And once again, that sounds narrow and exclusive, especially in our day and age, especially in a city like Seattle, but it's really not because what Jesus is saying is that God is a person. And like any person, there's only one way to get to know them. Um, if, if I want to get to know Frank, let's say Frank's here today. There's not a Frank, but if there was a Frank, and I want to get to know Frank, I can't just open the phone book and start calling any numbers. I have to get Frank's specific number. And I have to talk to Frank, and I have to get to know Frank, and I have to hear Frank's story. There has to be a relationship that's built. Jesus is making it abundantly clear that he is God. Why do you think they crucified him? We're moving right into Easter. Why do you think Jesus was crucified? It wasn't for giving free lunches. It wasn't for giving free health care. It was for claiming to be God. And even you and I, the real opposition that we have in our hearts, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, is to the rule and reign and authority of Jesus Christ. His demands and commands that he places on my life, on your life, and every life of anyone who's ever lived. This is the outrage of Jesus. This is the offense of Jesus. So the other word we really need to understand as we look at these opening verses is the world. The world. Um, this is the Greek word cosmos, um, where we get cosmology, which uh, means everything. Um, but John uses it in a particular way. Uh, John uses it in a different way than Paul. Paul's the guy who wrote many of the letters in the New Testament. He wrote the book of Romans and a bunch of other letters in the New Testament. But John uses it a little bit different. Uh, John has a little bit of a distinct use for that. And for some of us, when we hear the phrase world, and this once again has led to all sorts of different reactions by Christians and how they engage and think of the culture around them. For some of us, when we hear the world, we think of out there, right? Outside of the church, Outside where it's bad, outside where sin is out of control, outside, out there. Whatever out there is. Out there where, where the drunks are, out there where the polluters are, out there where Fox News is or CNN or the conservatives or those who don't agree with our agenda or those who have a differing viewpoint on sexuality or life or whatever it might be, the world is out there. And it almost creates this posture, this, this attitude, this logic that follows if if the world's out there, the best thing we can do then is to remain in here. And it sets up a very us versus them dichotomy in reality. And even at face value, if you look at this passage, you can seem to maybe walk away with that. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus saying create some, some cul-de-sacs of Christians and to wall yourself off from the world around you? Is he saying that the world is just out there? And so, once again, we see that in some Christian traditions. Maybe it's the Amish, which we have all seen on uh, documentaries or shows or read about or whatever it might be, you see a, a mentality of what it means to follow Jesus and to be God's people is to become quite sectarian and withdraw and wall yourself off from the rest of the world. But that's not what John's getting at here. It's not what John wants us to see. Here's the great thing about John. So in order to understand what he's saying here, you don't have to just do like a, a big Greek word study. But you can actually just look at how John's used it in other parts of the Bible. The good thing about John is he didn't just write this gospel, but he actually wrote other letters to the church later on in his life. And he gives us an incredible, awesome insight into what he means by the world. Here's how I'll give you a summation for it, and then we'll look at that. This is what John means by the world. The collective impulse in all of humanity, not just Christian or non-Christian, but all of humanity, to oppose... Think of stiff arm once again. The kingdom and the reign and the purposes of God. The collective impulse, the, the desire, what, what is inside you and me, not out there, not something that's contaminating the air, but rather who I am, who you are, who we are inside, the impulse, the desire to buck against, to rebel, to push aside the rule and reign of God. If you read the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what you see time and time again is this phrase, kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And Jesus saying he's coming to start this kingdom of God, to begin this kingdom of God. If we don't understand that, then we'll miss even what's being said in this passage. 
Jesus is saying, I'm coming to start a new rule and reign in this world. And you and I, we live, we live in this, this intermediate state. Theologians call it an already not yet. The kingdom has already began, but it's not yet completely finalized and realized. And we feel that tension. And how we respond to the world around us is often based on how we understand the world out there and the kingdom of God that God is unfolding. So this collective impulse in all of humanity to oppose the kingdom and the reign and the purposes of God. Yet for for us, what, what really pushes us into living out the kingdom of God is when we gladly embrace the majesty and the beauty, but mainly the authority of Jesus Christ. There was this great theological debate back in the, the early 80s. It's called the Lordship Salvation Debate. And the idea was, can Jesus just be your Savior, but not your Lord? And theologians, once again, they wrote way too many books about it because uh, I think there's passages just make it blatantly clear, like this one. But Jesus, part of Him being your Savior is that He also becomes your Lord. Part of Him being your Savior is that He also becomes your Lord. And in fact, unless He's your Lord, I don't know if He's really your Savior. Because Jesus comes and He makes audacious claims. He makes bold claims. He makes far-reaching claims that all of human history, all of your life, holistically, not just your Sunday mornings, not just your quiet times, but all of your life belongs to Jesus. And for the Christian, the one who abides in Jesus Christ, as we've been looking at in John 15, this is good news. This is the best news because it is under the authority of Jesus Christ that you and I get to experience Him, to know Him, to see Him. We get more of Jesus. We get the very thing that heaven will be forever and ever and ever. Heaven is not Club Med. Heaven is not Maui. Heaven is the full manifested presence of Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. That's what heaven is. So Jesus is inviting us into that. He's saying for the Christian, you get to begin to abide now. You get to become friends with Jesus and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. So what we do is we repent of our sin we confess our sin. We, 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 we dive into community. We grow in the fruit of the Spirit. We use our spiritual gifts. We become more like Jesus. And as we do, we get more of Jesus. This is the kingdom of God. But you and I, we live in this place where the world is a, a reality. And so let me flesh that out a little bit more by what John said in 1 John 2. And you can flip there if you want, but I'll have it up here on the screen. 1 John 2, 15 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Did you catch that particularly? Look at verse 16. Let's break this down. Look at each portion real quick. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. So what he's telling us the world is, the world is, is, is three things, excuse me. The desire of the flesh. The desires of the flesh. What that really is for many of us, if we walk in here today, our primary agenda, what we're going to devote the most hours of our life to during this next week is being comfortable. Comfort. Man, when your flesh cries out at the end of a hard day, when maybe your kids had to go to the bathroom five more times before they'll finally get in bed, when the dishes still have to be done, when it seems like your commute takes forever, when it seems like you've earned that third bowl of ice cream. I know. Well, that's just me. Okay, I'm being honest. guess I can't. Comfort. We want to be comfortable. Our flesh cries out for comfort. And we rationalize and we create justifications and we create reasons why we are entitled for it. And it goes way beyond even the next work week, but it goes on even to our deepest ambitions and goals. As you think about your career, how do I find the position that is most comfortable? Or another desire of the flesh. For some of us, we look down on those who seek comfort, and we maybe even see them as lazy or those who give in to too many urges. And for us, we love power. We want power. We want to be in control. We want to move up the career ladder. We want our family to work just so. We want all of our relationships to operate like a train schedule and no one ever to get out of line and no disagreements and no conflicts. For others of us, we really want to be liked. We really want to be liked. That fear of man, that desire to be liked, 
to have other people affirm us, to accept us, to maybe think we're on the enlightened side of every issue, stops us from being fully human. It enslaves us. It imprisons us. Desires of the eyes. For some of us, it's, it's possessions. We look around and we say, as soon as I have the right stuff, as soon as I have the right possessions, as soon as I've acquired enough money in my bank account and my toys, whatever it might be, that's when life will finally have the meaning that I want. But for all of us, the pride of life, what is the pride of life? This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. It's that inside of every human heart, inside of every single one of us, there's a part of us that looks to God and says, not your will be done, but my will be done. This is the very first sin. This is the sin beneath every sin. It's us looking at God and shaking our fist and saying, I know better than you. This was the lie that Adam and Eve believed. That God was holding out on them. That God could not be trusted. That God was really not good. And whether you're a Christian or not Christian, once again, the gospel, listen to me, friend, it's for you. It's for you. To submit, to surrender, to come under the reality that the authority of God is good, that He can be trusted, that you can repent of your sin, that there is grace upon grace upon grace for those who turn from their sin and run to Jesus. And His arms are always open wide. He's always ready to reconcile. In fact, this is the good news. This is the very gospel that we preach I don't want any of us to walk away from here thinking that this creates an, an aura of superiority for the Christian to say, well, I'm not of the world. I'm, I'm beyond the world, and I know better than the world because every single one of us is wrestling with different appetites, different desires, different loves, different things we're devoted to. And you can say you're a Christian just like I can. You can say you're a follower of Jesus, but that's so meted out. It's so revealed in the very ways that you will spend your life. Um, I said it about a month ago in a sermon we were preaching on love, but that Mumford and Sons lyric comes to mind once again, that, that where you invest your love is where you invest your life, but it also shows what is your life. Where you spend, where you devote, where you give your loyalties to, what are your appetites? Now see, there's two approaches. When some people hear this, when some people think about this, they think, okay, what you're really telling me to do is to just follow Jesus, to read my Bible, to do good things, to join groups, to, to get busy, and, and, and it's, it's like my vegetables. I guess it's good for me, and I'll, I'll choke it down, and, and that'll be that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus gives you completely new appetites so that what was once repulsive and disgusting now becomes altogether lovely and appealing. I hate broccoli. I hate beets. I hate most vegetables, for those who know me. I do. But, you know, my appetite's changing a little bit as I get older. I, I try new things every once in a while just to see if I like something that I didn't like a couple years ago. And my appetite changes. And that's not something that I can necessarily manifest or convince myself of all on my own but really it's just something that's happening but it's also a good depiction of what happens when you become a christian when you choose to begin to follow jesus i'm not telling you to white knuckle it and to force the vegetables down and that jesus is good for you so suck it up and eat it i'm telling you that he'll give you altogether new appetites to turn from your sin to turn from your sin which does seem Appealing, which does seem like a feast, but altogether is enslavement and slop. And Jesus offers you something so much better, so much more satisfying, so much more desirable. This is at the very nature of the parable of the prodigal son as he finds himself eating next to pigs, eating pig slop. He says, why wouldn't I go home and at least eat the scraps off my dad's table? But his dad has altogether something better for his appetites. A feast in which he kills the fatted calf and he invites him in. So Christianity isn't about just numbing your desires and killing your desires, but rather it's about having your desires changed, having new desires created and fostered and awakened inside of you. This is the good news of the gospel, and the beauty of the gospel is that what once enslaved you and seemed altogether satisfying, whether it was comfort, whether it was power, whether it was complete control, 
whether it was possessions, whether those things were the things that drove you and they were your deepest appetites, you become liberated from. How do you become liberated? By the blood of Jesus Christ. By the blood of Jesus Christ. You become liberated. Paul speaks of sin as more an enslavement or an addiction. I don't know about you, but have you ever battled a serious addiction? Have you been around someone who's battled an addiction? I'll tell you what, most people I know who have battled a serious addiction, it's a lot like enslavement. Jesus comes to set the captives free, to release us from our enslavement. And he does that through the very blood of Jesus Christ. So at the core of this, at the core of this is freedom. What we think makes us free, what we think actually gives us autonomy, is the very thing that ends up often enslaving us. And rather, Jesus invites us back into his house, into his world, and to live into the kingdom of God instead of this world. As we do that, we're given a new heart, we're given a new nature, and we're given a new appetite, and we're given new desires to trust him, to follow him, to obey him, to love him. Not because we have to, but because we get to. And that makes all the difference in the world. So a few things I want to say. This is the last thing we'll really look at um, even in, in this section. Is we, I've got to be honest with you guys. Why, why does this passage, what does this passage tell us about why? Why does the world hate, hate Jesus? Why does this world hate Jesus and us? Why does this world hate Jesus and us? Two things. There's two reasons. But first, a qualifier. Some of you... Um, the world might just hate you because you're rude, okay? So I just want to put that out there as a qualifying. Um, you might just be rude or arrogant. Uh, in fact, Jesus tells us to, to not parade your self-righteousness, to not parade your good deeds and your good works. And for, so for some of you, um, maybe your friends, your coworkers are going to happy hour, and instead of going with them, you, you make a snide remark about, well, I'd never go drink or that's not for me, I'm going to go read my Bible. Um, and you're just no fun. So it's not that you're being persecuted, it's just that you're no fun. Or maybe some of you, you got the, the Christian fish on your car and you drive like a maniac on I-5, cutting people off and people are flipping you off and whatever it might be. But it's, it's a mess and you think you're being persecuted. You're not. You, you just need to not drive, ever. Again, you just need to stop driving. And some of you, some of you, because of our insecurity, because we think someone might reject us or someone might oppose us, we become judgmental and insecure and we oppose them first. It's almost a defense mechanism. Oh, you know what? Like when they find out I'm a Christian, they might not like me, so I'm just going to judge them first. And so you become insecure or judgmental. And so what, what I'm going to say needs to have that qualifier, okay? Those are live, viable options. That it's not always just if you experience some type of suffering because of your faith. It's because of opposition. It might just be because of your bad behavior, Okay? In fact, Paul says this, let there be no stumbling block to the gospel except the gospel, okay? So that means our behavior, that means the way we treat other people, that means the way we love. That doesn't mean we ever have a standoffish attitude in which we segregate ourselves from others and we become very defiant and judgmental of those around us. Um, that's why as a church, we strive very hard to be a place that's loving and welcoming. And we say it all the time, if if you're a Christian or not Christian, or you're not a Christian, this is a safe place for you to be. We really want you to feel loved, and we, we value that you're here with us and that you give us some of your time this morning. So we love that you're here. And really, if there's one thing we ever want you to be offended by, it's the gospel, not our behavior. So first reason they hate you. Look at verse 19 again. It says, if you belong to the world, then it would love you as its own. The world hates you because you are not of this world. The world hates you because you're not of this world. So once again, because you're not of the values and the beliefs and the practices of this world, but rather because Jesus comes and he inaugurates a counterculture, a different way to live, a different reality, the world's going to hate us. The world will oppose you. And not because of your politics or not because of our morality, but rather because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel can be and will be altogether offensive. It at times can be a distinct marker to those around us of the transformation 
of the freedom of the redemption that God's done in your life, and maybe even some of the sorrow and suffering and enslavement that someone still finds himself in. Once again, I have a really good friend who has struggled with addiction for most of his life, and after a couple of years of being sober, um, trying to do lots of good work and ministering to those who are still battling addiction, he said one of the toughest parts of becoming sober was the loss of friendships from all of his buddies that he used to do drugs with. Because for them, he had become in some ways a symbol of what they knew they wanted most. For, for them, his presence made them feel judged. And that can happen. That can be part of the reality. Sometimes our presence, sometimes the reality, sometimes the transformation that Jesus does in our lives can be altogether convicting or at times difficult for those who knew us before Jesus gave us a new heart and a new nature. But this isn't something, once again, for us to boast in. What did Jesus say in John 15 that we looked at last week? He says, I chose you out of. I chose you. And he says even in this passage, look there again at verse 20. He says, you've been chosen out of this world. So it's not like Jesus looked at you and said, you know what, you're such an all-star. i got to have you on the team. You've earned it. You've made the cut. Come on over. But rather, Jesus, in his infinite grace, because of his deep love for you, chose you and me to become his adopted children. This should crush all appearances of superiority or even attitudes of being better than those around us. The child who's adopted from the orphanage does not boast but rather delights and finds great joy and gratitude that they've been chosen. And so Jesus has come and he's chosen us out of. And we now walk with him and we now know him. Verse 21, what does it say there though? Look at that too. It says, they will do it because of my name. Because of my name. This is really significant. Every single one of us in this room, we have a last name, right? Your last name in some ways, it identifies you. But in in, in this culture, in the audience that Jesus is speaking to, names would also declare your allegiance. They were also part of your reputation. They were where you would get your very identity from. So what Jesus is saying, because you guys now carry my name, because of my name, your allegiances are with me. Your identity is with me. Naming always has to do with identity and with authority. And so you and I, as we choose to walk in sync with Christ, we now find ourselves walking out of sync with the culture around us in many key places. Uh, William Henley, the great poet, he wrote one of the most famous poems of the last couple hundred years, Invictus. Um, And the famous line of that is that I am the captain of my own soul. Many of you have probably heard it. It's become a banner cry, a mantra for many. And I'm the captain of my own soul. And really, what better describes the American mentality and approach to much of life? That I chart my own destiny, that I'm responsible for my own reality, that I make all my own decisions. At its core is this deep cry once again for all autonomy. And so the claims of Jesus' authority once again come into play. And part of it is when we become Christians, we also not just get a new identity, but we get a new family. We get a new family. That's why we talked about even last week. When you become a Christian, it's so key to your development, to your growth, that many of your closest friends are also followers of Jesus. Because your friends, they'll do an incredible work in conforming you and shaping you and growing you. They'll influence you. They'll mold you to become more like Christ. So we get a new family. And as we have a new family, often our priorities change. Our realities change. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I, was, I played basketball. And one of my friends, uh, my sophomore year on the team, his name was Brandon. And uh, Brandon was pretty good at basketball, but he was much better at, um, at, at band stuff. I don't remember what instrument he played, one of them. But he was really good at band. Um, and so he had a choice as these two things began to collide with one another, as the schedules for them collided one another, with what path he would choose. Now, here's the thing about high school sports, and I'm sure many of you can identify. When you play a high school sport, it's pretty all-life-encompassing. It took up our summers. We traveled in the spring. We were training in the fall, and we had our season throughout the fall and winter, and it was year-round for the most part. And so me and the guys on that team, we were basically a family. We hung out together. 
We'd party together. We would do our homework together in study hall. We would travel together. We were together all the time. And in some ways, we had this same authority structure. We had this one coach who would come in and yell at us and tell us the plays. And, you know, he was almost a godlike figure in our lives. And this was our reality. This was our life. So Brandon, though, Brandon realized that he had a better future focusing on band. Uh, he'd probably be able to get a college scholarship out of it, in fact. And so he chose band. And it wasn't necessarily something he did that was offensive or altogether wrong, or there wasn't a moral quality to it. But the reality is, is we slowly found ourselves resenting Brandon. He wasn't with us anymore. He didn't love what we loved. He didn't spend his time doing what we did. He didn't have the same beliefs. He didn't have the same values. He didn't have the same priorities. Now, it didn't make sense. I mean, there's nothing logical. There's no reason for us to push away from Brandon. But what happened is that our life, the life that we had as a basketball team, changed from the priorities in life that Brandon had. New relationships. Think of new relationships. How many of you guys have had a friend who has started dating someone and the relationship's gone through that, like, heavy infatuation phase? You know, like, I'm all in. Every waking moment, we're texting 24-7, we're writing notes, we're sending flowers, all, all that good stuff. All that stuff that goes on forever, right? Like, you guys have been married a long time, you're still doing that? Should be. So, all of that good stuff. But what happens? What happens when you have that friend? We all have those friends that dive in, like, they're head over heels. That's even the expression. What happens? Well, their schedules change, their priorities change, their focuses change. And sometimes you as a friend even go like, man, they're not the same person anymore. I don't know what they're doing. I never even hang out with them anymore. I never see them anymore. I never talk to them anymore. Because a new relationship. A new relationship is transforming their reality, is transforming their life. Now, hopefully they come out of that eventually and you don't, you know, live your life in that infatuation phase. But you guys get my point. The relationship transforms. The relationship changes. This is true for everyone, Christian or non-Christian, because by very nature, we are communal beings and we're, sh- we're changed and shaped by our relationships. So when you choose, when Jesus chooses you, when he gives you a new heart, a new nature, when he gives you a new family, and you begin to walk lockstep with Jesus, there will be ramifications for it. When your schedule looks different, when your checkbook is reprioritized, when your affections, when your appetites are reoriented, there will be shifts and consequences in your life. And this is what Jesus is telling us. Because not everyone is going to obey his teachings, right? Isn't that what he said? Not everyone's going to obey them. So what do we do? What do we do? Why, why does the world hate followers of Jesus? Well, one, once again, just to summarize, we, we often serve as a, a function of conviction at times. The truth is, is that when most people look at Jesus, he's a mirror into our souls. He shows us parts of ourselves that we need to repent of. He shows us parts of ourselves where the gospel needs to be applied. But he also extends incredible grace to us. Grace into our deepest hurts and wounds and pains and sorrows and sufferings. But Jesus always holds up a mirror like any good relationship. I know when I got married, one of the biggest challenges, one of the biggest obstacles was that I found out I wasn't nearly as loving, patient, kind, peaceful as I thought I was. I lived with some other guys, and I really thought I was a pretty good person. I was like, man, I'm really patient. All these other guys, like, I got put up with all their stuff and their dirty dishes, and like, I'm so good. And then I got married, and my world was just rocked. It was like having a giant magnifying glass held up to my soul. I found out I had miles to grow in patience and kindness and love, and peace, and gentleness. Because a relationship had a profound impact. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus shows up and often shows us parts of our life that need radical transformation. And the good news is that transformation isn't something that we do, but it's something that He does through the cross and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So last, last part of our passage. And we'll go quicker through this, I promise. How do we become the kind of people that are okay with that? How do we become the kind of people that are okay with that? Because Jesus, in his incredible kindness and love for us, he wants us to know that this is going to be the reality. This is part of counting the cost of following Jesus. So he, he spells it out in the rest of this passage. Here's what he says. When the advocate comes, who's the advocate again? The advocate is the Holy Spirit, who he was talking about last week, and we'll talk more about next week. Whom I will send to you from the Father. 
the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you, so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this, so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. So Jesus says, I'm leaving, but, but, and you're going to face some incredible challenges and part of what it means to abide by, with me. And if, if you are, if you're a follower of Jesus once again and you're abiding with Christ, part of what it means to abide with Jesus is you're also going to have to abide with Jesus in some of his sufferings. Because Jesus was spit upon, because Jesus was mocked, because Jesus faced opposition, don't be surprised when you face trials, when you face tribulations, when you face difficulties. We are not greater than our master. We are not greater than him, but the good news is we're provided an advocate. An advocate. This advocate is the Holy Spirit who comes to us, who who offers grace to us, who offers love to us, who offers a deep sense of perseverance and power in those moments of sorrow and suffering that pushes our eyes back to focus on Jesus Christ. That phrase there, pay attention to that too. It says, to not go astray. To not go astray. Jesus is warning. This, this is the Greek word scandalous. This is where we get the Greek word, or the word scandalous. It's from the, the Greek word there, scandalizo. Scandalizo. And what it's saying is that, that many people will stumble and fall away from Jesus over the opposition that they will receive. That the opposition that comes from following Jesus will wear some of us down, will erode our zeal, will erode our faithfulness to Jesus throughout life. That's a scandal because Jesus is saying in those moments you return to the Holy Spirit and that these oppositions, verse 4 of chapter 16, the last verse says this, I've told you this so that when their time comes you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. So Jesus is saying I'm, I'm now telling you something that I haven't really filled you in all the way but now is the time for you to know everything. And you're going to need to hear this. But the good news is those trials, those oppositions that you face, man, they're going to strengthen you. Think about the disciples. So these guys, they're all going to, they're all going to bolt on Jesus in a matter of hours. They're going to run. None of them are going to stick by him, okay? So things are about to, to get real messy. They're going to face tons of opposition, and all these guys are going to run. But what does the Lord do through the incredible opposition that they're about to face? He radically transforms each and every one of them. Peter goes from a coward who denies Jesus three times before the rooster crows to a bold preacher at Pentecost. How does that happen? Because Jesus uses this opposition that Peter's about to face from a little girl. That, I mean, Peter's opposition was only from a little girl. You would have thought bold Peter, Peter who walked on water, Peter who's cutting dude's ears off. Like bold Peter would have been able to stand up to the opposition from a little girl. But even that, Peter falls under and Jesus redeems it. Jesus uses it so that later on, Peter could be deeply used by God. So Christian, let this be the deepest encouragement to you. Let this be of great comfort to you. That you and me, as we abide in Jesus, as we experience Jesus, as we come to Jesus and we repent of our sin, as we're liberated because of His work on the cross, that you and I are free to die from the consequences of the oppositions that we will face. So the mockery, the scorn, the persecution, the pain, the sorrow, the suffering is made altogether dull in light of the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. Uh, I remember being a youth pastor and there was one question that every youth pastor gets more than any other question. Some of you probably even asked it to, to your youth pastor if you had one growing up. And that's, it, it takes many different forms, but it's basically, how far can I, dot, dot, dot. How far can I? Every, every kid wants to know how far can they go. How far can I go with my girlfriend? How far can I go with drinking? How far can I go with partying? How far can I go with dot, dot, dot. And really, the, the, question, the question beneath that question is, How much can I do what I want? How much can I push the boundaries of the authority of Jesus Christ 
and still be in his good graces? That was really the question they were asking. Or maybe even sometimes the question came from a more innocent place or a more genuine place of how much can I spend time with my non-Christian friends and how many environments can I enter into or places can I experience without it, quote-unquote, maybe contaminating me, if you think the world's out there as we were talking about. How far can I? And I would never answer the question. In fact, all I would do is answer the question with a question. I'd say, the question isn't how far can you go. The question is how close can you stay? How close can you stay to Jesus? How many of you played tetherball when you were in elementary school? Now, the tetherball always stays close to the pole because it's roped. So no matter the, the violent lashes or beatings that it takes, it stays tethered to the pole. It can withstand a lot of opposition, right? There's a lot of opposition and force coming the way of the tetherball. And the tetherball is not saying, how far can I go or how much can I withstand? It's saying, how strongly am I tethered to the pole? And so for you, for me, as we abide in Jesus, as we wrap up this mini-series we've been doing on abiding in Jesus, the question I would have for all of us is how close can we stay to Jesus? How much can we stoke our appetites and our affections for the things of God? How much can we realize that we're liberated from our shame and our past? We don't have to hide. And when we come out of hiding, we get healing. When we realize Jesus already knows and he has nothing but grace upon grace for us. And we take the first step to repent of our sin and to walk with him. Or maybe you're not a Christian and today's the day where you've heard that God has grace upon grace for you. That there is no more wrath for you because Jesus took all of that wrath upon himself in his work on the cross. And death did not have the last word, but rather the last word was an empty tomb. And because of that empty tomb, you are now liberated to live freely and joyfully the way you were made to live under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ.